wow, if something happened, Dini, where would you go? And I see an open space and I'd go, I'd go there. And that's when it happened. She yawed violently. We dropped, I don't know how many hundred feet. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to the Rotary Wing Show. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. I'm glad you can come hang out with us today. This is episode 49. We'll be hearing from Deanie Petty about flying a pink Hughes 300 traffic helicopter over Toronto in the 1960s. A big thanks to those of you that have emailed me. It's great to learn a bit about what you do and get your feedback. I'm not always super fast in responding, but I do try to get replies to everyone. There is one here from Stephen G that gives me a nice segue into the the purpose of the show. Steve writes that he's been listening to the podcast for about six months and is working back through the episodes. It is honestly a highlight of my day being able to tune in and feel like I'm part of a community of listeners with a common set of values and interests. As I travel a lot for work, I listen to the podcast and a few others when I'm in the car or on the plane and can't wait to get into the computer to check out the show notes, which are great. One thing I might mention is that I found it a little difficult to easily find my way back to a Pacific episode. Steve then goes on to mention another podcast with a link there that shows how they do it using a grid layout on the website. So thanks, Steve. I really appreciate the the feedback. And it shouldn't be that hard to copy something similar on the website. So I'll investigate that. And what I've started to do again, which I'd stopped for a while, is I'll set up the website URL so that you can type in rotarywingshow.com forward slash the episode number and that will take you straight to that episode. So this one would be rotarywingshow.com forward slash 49. But the reason I wanted to highlight Steve's email was he was talking about being part of a community with common values and interests and that really is the whole goal of the show to bring the helicopter world that little bit closer and provide a way to share experiences and lessons and different types of flying knowledge around to those who might be remotely located or simply involved in their own specialized part of the industry. So wherever you are in the world, as you keep back and listen to this, just know that you are tuning in with a bunch of people just like you that love helicopters. The sponsor of today's episode is trainmorepilots.com. If you're looking for help marketing your flight school or aviation business, then you can find resources there at the website trainmorepilots.com. Today's guest forged her mother's signature on a permission form for skydiving lessons when she was 17. By age 22, Deanie Petty was flying above Toronto, Canada as the first female helicopter pilot who was also giving traffic reports at the same time as being on the sticks. Deanie clocked up 5,000 hours in a Hughes 300 in the traffic role before going into a career in television as a news anchor and then daily talk show host, where she received a number of different TV industry awards. There was even a a tulip flower named after her. When we did the recording on Skype, there was a a noticeable delay on the line. I think we've been able to edit most of it out, but if you pick up some spots where we're talking over each other, that's the the reason for that. I'm a a huge tech and startup fan, so I tend to follow a lot of the, the news coming out of Silicon Valley and crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter. Deanie and I opened up the interview talking about a huge crowdfunding campaign that Deanie is involved in that relates to cats, which reminds me about the IFR joke about the the cat and duck method of instrument flying, which I'll share with you at the end of the episode. Deanie Petty, thank you for being able to spend some time and and chat helicopters with us for the Rotary Wing show, so uh, welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So I've got here after a couple of quick notes. I've been looking around. So you, you jumped out of airplanes, you flown helicopters, scuba dived, driven some pretty nice cars, I must admit. You've done Amnesty International Overseas, anchored TV shows, you've got your own uh, talk show, 
And as I said before, 15 to 20,000 uh, interviews. Uh, and there's one article there that said you were like the, the Canadian Oprah. Uh, and you've just cleared a million dollars in Kickstarter campaign. So that's a, that's a fair bit to, to cover. It's a lot to cover. And actually, we're over two million. We're just hit two million now. We're on Indiegogo. And we've had a lot of interest from Australia, which is interesting. Well, folks, you know, it's not every day you clear, uh, when, when I say clear, it's obviously raise $2 million um, in a project like that. So do you want to just tell people uh, what we're talking about? Sure. If you're a cat owner, uh, you'll appreciate it. It's uh, a litter box, kitty caca. And I actually was involved in the mid-90s with the inventor and literally... I, like most of my life, things happen by chance and circumstance. I am a very, very lucky girl. In the 90s, mid-90s, I walked into the hairdressers one Saturday, and there's a guy in his hands and knees on the floor with what looks like a, a litter box for cats. And I'm like, what are you doing? He said, well, I've invented this new kind of litter box, and I'm looking for an investor. And when he showed me how the thing worked, my mouth fell open, and I went, that's amazing. And I stuck up my hand and said, hi, I'm Deanie Petty. I'm your new investor. And I worked with him through Canada and financed him. But then he sold the deal to the Americans. So Canadians made an itty-bitty bit of money. And the Americans went off and it, did it. it was incredible. Huge success. So about three years ago, it, by a weird, another lovely chance happening, uh, it came back into my life and the opportunity to bring the product back to market. And fortunately, my son, is, who is technically clever, as I am inept, said, why don't we bring it back? And I'm like, well, he said, yes, yeah, so we could do it on the internet. And I'm like, really? And the rest, as they say, is a wonderful story. So if you own a cat, and what makes it so different is it's a three-tray system. And when it's set up, it becomes a perpetual sifting loop. And the name of it is loop and the trays are shaped like U's, like the letter U. So it's loop with three U's, one, two, three, loop.com. And if you are a cat owner and you go on it and we are just put in loop.com, you'll end up in Indiegogo. And like I said, we've had so many inquiries from Australia that we will be shipping. But the best part is I launched it on my 71st birthday, January the 15th of this year. So... As I keep saying to younger people who are always like, oh, I'm so old, I'm turning 40, I'm 48, I'm 50, I'm like, shut up. There's lots of time. You never know what's going to happen. No, and I've seen the video that you've got on the campaign there as well. So I think your son features in that. And it's 50 Fisher. I can't remember. I either came across your name, Dini, through a comment that your son put on, on Reddit where he posted a, a photo of you in a, a Hughes 300, or it was when I was searching for, um, for female helicopter pilots, you might have come up in a, in a Google image search. I, ca I can't remember which way I, I got to you, but uh, it, was, it was one of those ways. Um, and, and I guess if we so – I'll put the link there for anyone who's a, a cat owner listening to the, to the, the show. They can uh, come check out the uh, – uh, this kitty litter that's raised uh, $2 million. So we'll, uh, we'll circle back to helicopters shortly. But the, the other big thing, you know, you've had a huge media career and we touched on the number of interviews you've done. Just to give people a bit of an idea, do you have a couple of top favourites of the people that you've interviewed over that time? Yeah, it's interesting when you say that I'm, uh, and they used to refer to me as Canada's Oprah. There's just a few differences. I'm a slim white girl and compared to Oprah, I'm absolutely a pauper. Outside of that, we're pretty much identical. And I think the only reason that we we were ever compared was because my show was extremely popular. Who are my favorite interviews? Lord, you may not be old enough to remember, but Red Skelton, the comedian, was the greatest privilege of my career. Who else did I really enjoy? Uh, John Lennon's son. Just forgot his first name. I God, I interviewed. I had a wonderful uh, interview with Harrison Ford. In fact, I have a fan page that's up on Facebook, and so you can just join it. And I posted a bunch of interviews when Omar Sharif passed away. I posted an incredibly funny interview with him, and I put up Michael Caine because he was delightful, 
and I put up Harrison Ford because the whole interview was a setup. Um, I went into his dressing room and the makeup lady's putting powder in his face. And I said, introduced myself. And I said, you do a lot of interviews. He went, yeah. I said, so do I. You want to have some fun? He said, what are you thinking? I said, look, you can, I'm going to start an argument. You can walk off the set. You can do anything you want, but promise me you'll come back and finish the interview. He said, okay. And as I'm walking to the set, I passed one of my senior producers and she was the only one in on the, on the thing. So we start the interview and I make some remark about the fact that it's pretty common for leading men to have affairs and get involved with their leading ladies. And he went, what are you doing? What? I think. And anyway, we got into this thing and he looked at me and was about to rip his mic off and said, look, I didn't come here to get my character assassinated. A friend of mine who watched the show every morning at this point falls off his treadmill yelling, what is she doing? It's Harrison Ford. Anyway, uh, he then Harrison turned to me and said, but it's all just acting, isn't it, Dini, like we're doing now? So that it was a good time. I, I enjoy the art of conversation. That fills in a, in a little bit more information because I've just finished watching that interview and there's a couple others there too I didn't watch, but there's a NSYNC one where you've got a, a studio full of screaming girls for this, uh, you know, pop band and uh, James Earl Jones. So some pretty big names. But yeah, I've got my notes here to, to ask about the Harrison Ford one because, yeah, all right, that, that fills in a few blanks because it was quite um, upfront. I think, you, you know, you called him old and <laughs> quite a few things. like that. It looked like it wasn't a normal interview that he would expect. Yeah, and, and I probably should have in the I don't even know if I mentioned in the intro that the whole thing was a setup and that but he was he was quite delightful and charming. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I sat through this I was going to say I'm sure it's one of the few inter- interviews he might actually remember. <laughs> well, I was gonna say I sat through the twenty minutes of it and I kept waiting for you to talk about helicopters with him because he's obviously pretty well known as a, a bit of a celebrity helicopter pilot. But uh, you didn't you didn't get there. You know what? I didn't get there. And I remember when the interview ended, I thought, what the, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you get into the helicopter thing? But yeah, sometimes it works and sometimes you forget. And sometimes, I mean, my very first interview, my very, very first interview. Oh, my God. I go into the studio. It's live. And I'm interviewing Patrick McNee, who was an English actor, the original in the Avengers series, which has been brought back in movies. And I go into the studio and I say, think to myself, oh, God, I'm so nervous. And I think, well, that's okay. It's live TV. You're supposed to be nervous. I sit down and I ask him my first question and I blanked, startled deer in headlights. I'm just like sitting there frozen with my mouth open. It's on live TV, of course. He being the great actor and kind man, he is leaned forward, tapped me on the knee and said, I know you want to ask about the play I'm in. Right, tell me about the play. When he answered that question, he leaned forward and said, I know, you want to know about my family? Yes, tell me about your family. 15 minutes of me going, yes, yes. So I thanked him afterwards and um, for being so kind. And I interviewed him several years later, got to tell the story, and I bought him a little gift and thanked him. Fantastic. Well, help me out then. What should I be asking you about helicopters? What's, uh, if you can tell people who are listening, uh, what's your claim to fame with regard to uh, talking about helicopters? Well, you know, it's, uh, I said earlier, I'm a, I'm a lucky girl. I'm on my second set of nine lives. A couple of those I used up in a helicopter. But how I got into flying helicopters is ridiculous. It's a story of being in the right place at the right time and and I guess the moral of the story is go to lunch with friends, get them to pay, and you never know what's going to happen. I was 22 years old. My mother was Canada's first talent agent. Before my mother, actors and actresses would have to go around to the production houses and drop their photo off. And my mother said, look, I'll, for 10% is what they charge them. I'll do all that for you. And my father was an animator. He had one of the first animation houses in, in Canada. So I grew up around the business and I had worked for, was working for a man who literally uh, produced and directed the first television commercial made in this country. But then Dean Peterson closed the doors and went out of business. And I was in that difficult position. How am I going to pay the rent and how am I going to eat? I need a job. So a girlfriend of mine, Peggy said, I'll, I'll take you to lunch and I'm buying and we're going to figure out what you're going to do for a living. And I said, 
I'm in, Peggy. So we went to a local watering hole in Toronto that uh, I guess a lot of advertising people or people in the business hung out in. Anyway, Peggy and I go in and sit down and three men come in from CKEY radio station. Now, at this time, and bearing in mind that I'm 71 now, and I was 22 at this point, my God, I am old. So it's 50 years ago. And as we, and uh, traffic reports were a new thing. They had just started. And there was a helicopter war going on in Toronto among the radio stations. Each radio station had two helicopters. In each one, there was a guy who did the flying and then a guy who did the announcing except at CKEY, where Bob Carter did both. And one day, Harvey, bless him, the PR guy, came out and said, I know how we're going to win this helicopter war. We're going to find a girl. We're going to put her up in a pink helicopter. She's going to drive a pink car. She'll wear a pink suit. Go find her. Meanwhile, back at the restaurant, Peggy and I have just sat down, and three salesmen from CKY Radio walked by our table we say hello to one of them, a man named Tommy Vradenberg, who we knew socially. And Tommy knew that I used to jump out of airplanes. So in the middle of their lunch, their problem comes up. Where are we going to find a girl to fly this helicopter? And Tommy looked over and said, see that girl? That's Deanie Petty. Now, I know she's crazy enough to jump out of an airplane. Maybe she's crazy enough to fly a helicopter. And literally, as he is walking to my table, our table, Peggy has just said to me, so what are you going to do, Deanie? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, Peggy. I can't be a secretary. This is long before spell check because I can't spell. And I said, I want to be challenged. I want to use my brains. And at that second, there was a tap on my shoulder, and I looked up into Tommy Radenberg's face, and I heard the words that changed my life. How would you like to be the girl in the helicopter? Um, sure, Yeah. And so I went up for my first helicopter ride. And, and what was, was your helicopter experience before then? Had, had you ever you know, nope. been out to the airfield and seen them? What was the closest you'd been? Well, I'd, I'd seen a helicopter once. I remember my father, if the world had been fair, my father should have been an aeronautical engineer. He was really a perfectionist and a brilliant man, but he was the son of a shoemaker, and so they didn't have the money for him to, to do anything. And I remember driving down a major highway because my dad was a freak about aviation. And he went, look, look, it's a helicopter. And there was one sitting on the ground. And I remember I was about 16 and I turned and looked at it and thought, what an odd looking thing. That's the only exposure I'd had. But I'd done some skydiving. So I'd been in and out of Cessna, you know, 180s. And so I went up for my very first helicopter ride. And I went up on the afternoon traffic run, which is about two hours long. And I watched Bob. And I, at the end of the, somewhere in that, I thought, well, really, all I have to do is figure out how to fly a helicopter, figure out what all those streets are called below, figure out how to do traffic reports. And then I can, apparently, you can talk to your passenger communicate with the guy at the station. He'll tell me when I'm going on air, talk to the towers. And my heart sank. I thought, how am I ever going to figure this all out? And then Bob said, look, there's the helicopter you're going to fly. And she was still blue at that point. And as she flew by and I looked at this little frail thing, I thought, oh my God, how am I ever going to do all this? But everything has a pattern to it, everything. And slowly and often, not very surely, I started to put it all together. And the most ridiculous part is I turned out to be a natural. Fantastic. I was really, well, I have five, I have 5,000 hours flying time. So if you've got 5,000 hours in a machine and you're not a really good pilot, you're an idiot or you're, you're totally in the wrong job. So did you do your training through on the Hughes 300 as well? Or what sort of, what helicopter did you yeah. start on? I started on the 269A which was, I guess, the forerunner, the 300 was like the new model. And then I went to a 300. So I spent most of my time on the 300. RGQ were her call letters. And Danny, what do you remember of the, the flying train itself? So the radio station, they covered all the costs? They paid for everything, plus they paid me a salary. 
And there was, um, and I flew with all men. I mean, you know, I walked into the heliport. I'm 22 years old. And with the exception of Bob, every machine had a pilot and an announcer. And I walk in, you know, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, going, ha, I'm going to do both. And the guys are like, sure, sweetheart, give it your best shot. And they they were pretty hard on me. I uh, I didn't realize till later that uh, there were bets going on about how long I'd last. And the guys didn't think I was ever going to do it. And it was... Uh, it was pretty hard at the beginning. The head mechanic almost cost me my life on one occasion because he believed that, quote, women do not belong in the air. But I turned out to be, as I said, I was a really good pilot and I loved it. God, it was one of the most wonderful things I've ever done, if not the most wonderful thing I've ever done. So paint a picture of your normal day then. Uh, so was it a morning run and then a, an evening run? Um, yeah, just... yeah, I flew from... Seven till nine in the morning and four to six in the afternoon. So I was doing four hours a day. Plus in the summer and the weekends, we'd fly, I don't know, three hours on Sunday. So I was putting in a lot of time. My instructor was a wonderful man named Doug Dunlop. And it took me a while to relax. I used to have to wear a golf glove on my right hand when I was holding on to the cyclic, which I, I don't know if all Hughes 300s have hatch marks in the plastic on the grip, I was hanging onto that thing so tightly that when I took the glove off, you could see the impression of the hatch marks in the palm of my hand. And I remember Doug used to say to me, for God's sakes, relax. I guess about a thousand hours, 1500, she became an extension of my arms. And then it became that wonderful thing that it becomes when you know what you're doing. So 5,000 hours and you're flying morning and night. Do you remember how many hours you were doing a year? Um, well, I had a couple of weeks off a year. Say I had a month off and say we had, uh, you know, those mornings when you couldn't fly. So I have no idea. I never actually thought about it. I probably flew out of 52 weeks a year. Say I flew 45 and I was flying 20 hours a week. But in the summer, we would do more. So what does that work out to? Do you have your computer there, your little calculator? Yeah, well, it's going to be around the, the 1,000 hours, I think, and we'll add that up, so say 50 yeah. and 20. So, yeah, okay, that's, that's cracking along. What was the, the helicopter scene in Toronto like at that stage? So you said the other radio stations had their machines as well. So did you sort of rush each other to, yep. to get to the, to the scenes of different things, or did you have a fairly standard route and you knew where the traffic was going to be? Yeah, um, we'd listen to each other. I mean, you know, if you if you think of Toronto um, as a rectangle, there are four main routes that go around it and some inside, you know, in the, all the streets in the city. And I, I can't, I mean, I had to get out of the job. I thought I was going to lose my mind. I mean, I, for, I think we did six traffic reports an hour. I have 5,000 hours. That's 30,000 times. I said, the Parkway northbound is stop and go. And trust me, the Parkway northbound is going to be stop and go from now till the world ends. And I thought, I got to get out of this job. I'm going crazy. So I left when I, I flew till I was eight months and 20 days pregnant and had the Ministry of Transport had their way. I would have landed a lot sooner. I arrived at the heliport one day and uh, they said, the Ministry of Transport wants to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, my God, because I... The week before, I'd said to my boyfriend, look, there's this big park just past behind his home. I said, go walk out in the middle of the baseball diamond. At 5 o'clock, I'll just zip in, pick. I mean, who's going to notice a pink helicopter, really, you know? So I thought, oh, my God, they know about my landing in the park and picking him up. So I pick up the phone, and I said, hello. And the guy said, Dini Petty. And I said, yes, Ministry of Transport. I'm calling to tell you your license is canceled. And I'm like, oh my God, they know. And I said, why? And he said, because you're pregnant. And I said, what does that have to do with anything? And he said, and I'm quoting, what would you do, Dini, if you were flying down the parkway and it moved? Well, sir, pretty much the same thing I would do as if I was driving down the parkway and it moved. I said, I'm going flying. If you want to fight with me, we'll do it in the press. So they let me fly, and I flew, as I said, till I was eight and a half months pregnant. 
which used to throw a few of the passengers off. It's one thing to arrive at the hellebore and see a bright pink, huge 300. And if you've never been in the helicopter, you know, it's a little unnerving. And then the pilot comes out and she's, she's eight months pregnant. So I'd pick it up into a hover and I'd open up the intercom and I'd say, sir, you have nothing to worry about. I'm an extremely good pilot and, and I have a lot to protect here. Yep. And then I'd say, by the way, if we are going in, we're going in on your side, just so you know. That's it. And the photos I've seen, Danny, of the machine, <laughs> like it's not only pink, you know, you know there's this huge 300 pink on the outside, but it looks like you've got pink cushion covers or, or on the inside as well. It looks look like it's pink as well on the inside. They put that... Uh, I think it was in the 60s, 70s. There was that cheesy pink nylon carpet that used to... Anyway, yeah, they put that in the back and on the floor. So she was very, very pink. And did you have floats the whole time? The photos are seen, there's, there's big yellow floats on the side of it. Yeah, we had floats because we uh, are... Originally, we were at the Spadina Heliport, which is uh, on Lake Ontario. So we'd literally take off over the lake towards the island airport and so we had to have floats did you do the float training so did you practice auto rotations into the into the water and, and things like that yes we we practiced but we never went all the way down okay just in case you made a mistake and hurt the machine you know be too expensive and in between the traffic reports did i, I see a mention they used to do sort of joy flights had sort of kids for fairs and things like that but was there charter work involved as well no no, there was no charter. I was strictly doing uh, traffic reports. And it turns out, according to the Whirly Girls, you know the Whirly Girls? Yep. The Whirly Girls is an international association of female helicopter pilots that began in the 1950s. And a well-known aviator by the name of Howard Hughes gave them medallions that were numbered on the back. But he only gave them 150 because, as Howard Hughes said... Ain't never going to be more than 150 women that fly helicopters. Well, I think today the Whirly Girls claims like 1,400 um, members. So according to the Whirly Girls, I was the first woman in the world to fly a helicopter and broadcast from it. And I saw a little note saying that you got a medallion, but then it got stolen at some stage. Was that, was that just a, is that correct? Yeah. It is. Somewhere out there, there's a medallion with the numbers 138th Whirly Girl. And I don't know where it is, obviously. Someone did steal it from my home. Right. Stole a charm bracelet, actually. My house was broken into. So number 138, if people are, are listening and see it come up in, uh, in auctions somewhere. Wouldn't that be lovely if somewhere it showed up around the world? I should put it out on Facebook. I wonder how good Facebook really is. Well, well, is there someone out there holding a medallion? Well, especially if it comes up, I mean, something like that when it comes up on a, you know, an auction site or something like that, because it is a fairly unique item uh, and sort of aviation history, and, and the the numbers are so well recorded, you'd think it would somehow find its its way out there. But uh, yeah, I've never put it out there that I'm looking for it, but I should. That's a good idea. Well, I'm sure if you if you contact Whirly Girls as well, I'm sure that's something they push out through their their details too. So I've got some contact details, and I'm sure you got there too. So yeah, oh, we might have a, a world search for uh, for number one thirty. Sorry, one thirty six, one thirty eight. I can't remember if it's one thirty six or one thirty eight. All right, well, I think it's one thirty eight. But you know, in my notes here too, I've seen mention that you said you know I mean you opened up and said you've almost lost your life a couple of times, but there's somewhere where you've written that you had th- yeah. three close calls. Uh, in a helicopter. Do you remember what they, they were? Can you share those experience? I remember the worst one. Um, well, I guess all close calls are bad. It was, uh, I, and I remember it because it was my birthday, January the 15th, and I had been partying the night before at my boyfriend, and I'd crashed there. And the radio station called, oh, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, saying, and it's, you know, obviously winter and lots of snow, would I go out on a search and rescue on Lake Simcoe, which is like 30, 40 minutes north of where I was then flying out of Buttonville Airport. And I went, guys, I was up to like two in the morning. I'm just, yeah, I was drink. I got to go back to, no. So I go back to sleep and an hour or so later, a friend of mine calls Charlie and he says, happy birthday. And, and uh, then he says, Deanie, I'm the one that put in the call. It was my uncle. And I'm like, oh my God, Charlie, they didn't tell me. 
So uh, Stephen and I jump up and drive up to Buttonville, and I my instructions are to follow Young Street, which little bit of trivia is actually the longest street in the world. And it goes due north and it ends at Lake Simcoe. So just follow that and you'll see the police cars. So I see the police cars, I land and I go, what do you want me to do? So we want you to fly over the lake and see if you can find this guy who went out in his skidoo last night and he didn't come back. And I'm thinking, well, how hard can that be? You know, guy slumped over his skidoo should be easy to see. So I pick her up and I'm uh, strictly VFR, strictly VFR. And I start flying out over the lake about 100 feet off the deck or so. <laughs> and I realize this is not going to be as easy as I figured because Lake Simcoe is huge. And there are hundreds of ice fishing huts. And there's all kinds of people out there and dogs and skidoos. And I'm like, oh, my God, this isn't going to be that simple. So I'm now over the middle of the lake and I, I see a couple of big snowflakes go by those big white fluffy ones. And I look up and I fly right into a snowstorm, complete, total whiteout. And by the time I realize what the heck is going on, I have this word that goes through my head about being lost. Is vertigo is the word I'm looking yeah, for? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not vertigo. Yeah, and I, I, I have no instruments. The only thing I have in the machine is it the turn and bank indicator? And it's what, about three inches long and it's about three feet away. And I'm trying to keep the bubble in the middle. That's the only thing I have, my only reference point. And then I say to myself, don't panic. And I think, oh God, I'm in trouble. I just used the panic word. Stephen has not said a word. Like it's real quiet in this machine. And I'm now yelling at myself inside my head, do something. I sit there, I'm, I'm frozen, and now I'm screaming, for God's sakes, do anything, do something. And I was smoking at that point. Maybe it's why I had such a hard time getting off cigarettes. And I took my cigarette, and I handed it to Stephen, and I said, here, hold this. He was on my right side. And when I gave it to him, I looked up, and that's when I saw it. Out the right side, I see what is a black, looks like a black, vertical line. I think it's a black telephone pole. And that's my only line of reference. And I straighten the machine up and I start slowly taking her down to discover I'm 10 feet off the deck. I've been slip sliding all the way down. A couple more of those slip slides, I would have gone right into the ice. Now I am sitting in the middle of a lake in a snowstorm. And the snowstorm eases up in a few minutes or so. Enough that I can pick her up now the question is, what direction did I come from? And I'm pretty sure it's that way. And I get over land and I'm going south, but it's not Young Street, but I am going south. And then I look at my uh, fuel. And I made every possible mistake a pilot could make. I didn't check the weather. I didn't check the fuel. I went off on a rescue mission to help a friend. And I looked down and She's on empty. She's just above empty. And I'm like, all right, you got two minutes. If you don't see anything you, you recognize, you got to put her down because falling out of the sky from, you know, 300, 400 feet or whatever, I, I guess I might have been about four or 500 feet, is not a good idea. A minute goes by and I look up and through the snow, whenever I used to drive up to Buttonville Airport, and I would leave and head south after work. There was a factory that sold carpet remnants and it had a big neon sign. And the neon sign said factory carpet, but the C was burnt out. So it said factory carpet. And I looked through the snow and what do I see? Factory carpet. I'm on top of Buttonville Airport. I'm literally like just to the east of it. And I call the tower and they say, there's nobody flying, Dini, you're cleared right in. And uh, we made it. And about three hours later, over a stiff drink, I started shaking and remembered that old saying that there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old bold pilots. Wow. What a story. Because you're right. The you know, number of seconds most folks have VFR pilots going into 
into a wide outer IFR is, in a helicopter is, is not many. So when you looked up and saw that, that power pole, what sort of angle? Were you like at an angle of bank at that stage or were you still fairly flat? Yeah, but here's, here's the crazy part, which didn't occur to me until years later. Somebody said, what was it? I said, was it telephone pole? And they said, well, I thought you said you were in the middle of the lake. I said, I was. So land, it took me like minutes to fly back to land. So I, it, it couldn't have been a telephone pole. I'm in the middle of a lake and it's ice. And somebody said, well, maybe you imagined that black line. I said, if I did, I'm a genius. So to this day, I cannot tell you what that vertical line was, but it saved my life. Wow. Okay. That's not a bad story to have. <laughs> all right. That's, yeah. Yeah. Particularly when you, they're all good when you live through them, you know. Yeah. That's enough to, to scare someone on a, yeah, on a, on a, on a, yeah, a snowy, snowy flight. <laughs> hey, the last time I did this, this flight in the snow, oh, this is what happened. Yeah. 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 No, to this, that's, yeah. I, I, honest to God, I have, I mean, even when I tell the story, I'm back in the helicopter, I hand him the cigarette, I see the black, and I'm like, I don't know what it was. Ah, and the other two is uh, probably not as dramatic as that, but um, can you remember what, what some of the others were? Yeah, the one where the the head mechanic almost cost me my life. I I also have done a one-woman show. Uh, it was called A Broad View, and I'm doing another one this summer called Men and Other Furry Creatures. And in it, uh, I have told the story because... Uh, it's how I actually, one of the ways I learned to stand up for myself. So I say to people when I'm on the stage, ever had your car engine miss just for a second, you know, and then it starts again? I don't think cars do that as much as they used to. But when that happens in a helicopter at 1,800 feet, it's a whole different story. And that's what happens. It happened three times. Unfortunately, all three times I didn't have a passenger because, you know, screaming hysterical passengers are not good when you're having an emergency. So I'm flying over the city. I'm doing my afternoon traffic run and she misses and she yaws to the left violently a bit and she starts dropping like a stone and I'm on her. We're going into an auto rotation and she caught and I'm like, okay, baby, just get us back. Her, her name was Fizby. Just, and if you knew her well, you could call her Fizz. And I said, Fizz, just get us to the airport, honey. Just get us back. So we land, I go in and I shut the machine down. And I go in the head mechanics there. He's working on something. I'm like, God, she missed. She yawed. She dropped like, and then she, she caught and she's flying. And I'm like, what was that? He throws the rag down, goes, God damn women. And he walks out of the hangar. I'm 23 years old. I get there the next day. He's standing by my machine. And he says, There's nothing wrong with this machine. Nothing. I took it up for a flight. And if you're having problems doing this job and you can't do it, maybe you ought to confess. And he walked away. Wow. So, you know, I get in the machine and she was fine. She was fine for, I don't know, two or three weeks. And then it happened again. Except this time it was more of a violent yaw. We dropped a little further, but she caught. And I'm like, all right, babe, just, just get us home. I land. I shut the machine down. I go in, I tell the guy, he's like, all right. I get there the next morning. He's standing by my machine with a clipboard. Check the machine out, took her for a test flight. I'm writing up a report. I'm sending this report to the radio station and to Hughes Helicopter because I think it's time somebody had a chat with the pilot because there's nothing wrong with the machine. I'm like, okay. And I went flying and then it happened. God. I'm flying over downtown Toronto. And as you well know, you know, the advantage of a helicopter is if, you know, if you got to do an emergency landing and auto rotation, you need the size of a, you know, a good size square. You don't need a runway. So I'm looking down over the main part of Toronto, all the tall buildings. And I'm thinking literally, wow, if something happened, Dean, where would you go? And I see an open space and I'd go, I'd go there. And that's when it happened. She yawed violently. We dropped, I don't know how many hundred feet. And I'm on her and I'm heading for that spot. And she caught. And I'm like, all right, sweetheart, let's get me home. So we land and I go into the hangar and 
he's there. And I said, okay, here's the deal. There's something wrong with the machine. I am not flying it till it's fixed. And if you can't figure out what's wrong with it, you get somebody up here from Hughes Helicopters who can figure it out. And by the way, I am now going to the radio station and I'm filing a report. Well, they went over her with a fine tooth comb and when they drained the oil from the engine, they found metal filings in it. And as you know, that they don't repair an engine like that because it's something in it is literally dissolving. So they took the whole engine out. They got a new one set up from Hughes and I guess it took two weeks or so. And I go back to work and I get in the uh, walk into the heliport and guess who's standing by my helicopter? And he's checked her out and he started her up, which is a kind thing to do. And he said, I owe you an apology. My belief that women do not belong in the air almost cost you your life. I'm so sorry. Wow, okay. And we were friends. And yeah, okay. That's a, a definite change of change of tact. Yeah. Did they pull apart yeah. the engine back at, at Hughes at all and actually do a deeper inspection? They never told I don't know. They never told me. I just they just gave her a new engine and off we went. But I suspect they must have, eh? No one ever um I never received that information. Let's uh, jump ahead and, and again, just conscious of time. You've done a fair bit of overseas travel with Amnesty International in Africa and places like that. Have you flown in helicopter, mm-hmm. flown in helicopters over there on the way to, to different sort of villages or towns or depending on, on what work you've done? Did you end up flying in other, in other machines? No, I was in just small airplane, missionary airplanes flying into refugee camps in uh, Uganda. Um, when I do travel, though, when I used to travel, I used to uh, get in touch with the, whoever was doing the, the helicopter traffic reports, and I would always hitch a ride with them. And there's a great story about a guy who flies, uh, does a traffic in uh, Hawaii on the main island, and he uh, shows up in his army fatigues, and we had a flight, and he told me the story. He was one of those guys that never took time off, you know, he would... Finally, they said, look, you're due like three months vacation. For God's sakes, take it. So he took two months off or something, and he went away, and he came back. And he's flying, gets up, and he's flying, and he heads towards Pearl Harbor. And as he's flying, all of a sudden, he looks up, and three Japs zeros come out of the sun in this direction, and three come out from over there, and this battle scene starts. He freezes, thinking that somehow... He's gone through a time warp and he's back in the middle of it. Well, what happened was they were filming Tora Tora, the movie. <laughs> and because he'd been away, he didn't see the notice and he flew right into the sea. And he said, that's why my hair's white. I go, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't make it into the movie then? <laughs> yeah, I think they probably cut his scene out, but you know. Fair enough. And uh, Danielle, I've got, got here a note too that you're a, there's a connection with you with the uh, Canadian uh, Forces as a reserve pilot? No. Okay. No, I was just a kid that went for lunch and needed a job, and I ended up flying a pink helicopter, and then I, I parlayed, because that made me a little bit famous. Um, I ended up going to New York and doing those shows to tell the truth and what's my line, and literally one day I'm walking down the street, Mick, and I'm like everybody else, and the next day, I'm on the front covers of magazines, and I became this thing that happened. So I used that bit of fame, and that's what I, how I got myself uh, into television. I used that to parlay my way in. And then uh, I was doing Anchoring the News, and, you know, uh, 12 Dead Film at 11 was not the way I wanted to spend the rest of my time or my attention And I was interested always in the human condition. So I started doing a talk show. And then that grew and it became a national talk show. And I I did that for 12 years. It was called the Beanie Petty Show, which I always thought was a really good title. And then um, as things happen in television, they all have cycles. Just one day they say, that's it. Don't come back next year. And thanks for dropping by. And I'm because I'm also a single mother with two children and there were no support laws in place. My driving goal in life has always been to feed the kids and myself. And so I, after that ended, I, I've always had business on the side. So I've continued doing business. I do some speaking. And every once in a while, somebody calls and reminds me that once upon a time, a very long time ago, 
I flew a pink helicopter. Excellent. No, that's very, very good. And do you still, you know, do you miss it? Do you take another chance and and go flying again? Or where's where's the flying at these days? I don't have any interest in airplanes. I find them boring. I mean, that's the problem. You can't see out of the damn things, you know. Um, I've gone up in a a glider, um, but I don't have any real desire. And helicopters up here to rent for now are, like, ridiculously expensive. Uh, people who have helicopters, um, I was at a party once where some wealthy man flew in and of course he, he heard I was there. So he took me for a ride, but no, it's, it's really of all the things I've done in my life. It's, it was the most beautiful thing I ever did that I had one experience one morning in those 5,000 hours. It was one of the most beautiful things that's ever happened to me. It was that Zen moment with the universe thing. Um, I was flying down the parkway and we were flying low because their cumulus clouds had formed a solid layer. And I looked up and there was a hole about the size of a football field. It's early morning and it's spring and I blip up through the hole. And above that hole, the tops of the cumulus clouds were all flat and the sun is rising in front of me. And it's, it's those soft colors of pink and orange that you only get in the springtime. And I turned off all the radios and I just flew and there was nothing but me and the universe. And it it was extraordinary moment. I marked it so I can return to it when I wish. It's your happy place. And then after a couple of minutes, I don't, oh God, it was, it was just so beautiful. I, I guess only pilots understand that, that extraordinary thing when, you know, the machine's part of an extension of your arms and you have those moments of extraordinary of flight which are just extraordinary well that's uh yeah it's a, it's a beautiful picture to uh to finish up there on i think uh so, so Danny, thank you very much for for your sharing some of that helicopter experience and again you know it would have been a, a really unique thing back then as you said you know got you a lot of attention to to kick the things off but uh that picture of a, a pink q300 with a pink interior and uh you know you as a 22 year old flying it over toronto in a, a pink flight suit uh, that would have been a, a very, you know, <laughs> very cutting figure. <laughs> That's what gave me my love of fine cars, of course, because if you fly a helicopter, you know, suddenly I'd get in a car and I'd realize that unless it's a precision piece of machinery, I don't want to drive it. So I did have uh, my favorite was the 928S Porsche. God, that was a beautiful car. Or maybe the B12 E-type Jaguar. And I still have the same thing. I mean, I, I you know, I drive a Passat right now, but I think it's my son says, you deserve another Porsche. And I'm like, you know, Nick, I do. Well, I always find they look so cheap after you've been uh, comparing helicopter dollar figures. And then you, you look at the type of car you'd get for the same amount of money. And uh, cars suddenly seem uh, very cheap. What does a, a Hughes helicopter or 300 cost today? I have no idea. If we we're going to go buy a new one. What would it cost us? For the, for the price of the Porsche? Yeah. For a nice top-end Porsche, you're probably going to get a, a very basic um, helicopter. Yeah, I think at this point in life, I'd go for the Porsche. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, <laughs> well, Dean, if, if you can do me a solid and just um, uh, give me Harrison Ford's uh, phone number after this so I can uh, get in contact with him, that would be awesome. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, thank you. I, I promise. I promised Harrison I wouldn't give his number out. I promise. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you very much for, for, for chatting. And um, it's been lovely. And, yeah, look, I hope you have a, a beautiful day over there. And uh, thanks again for sharing your experience, Danny. Cheers. Thanks for asking, Mick. Bye-bye. What a, a really lovely lady. Danny has done an amazing range of things in her life. And it was quite humble about it too. We touched on it in the interview, but her daily show ran from 1989 to 1999, so 10 years. And I think Oprah, Ellen DeGeneres, David Letterman type setups. She's met you know a great many famous people. We're talking people like Michael Caine, James L. Jones, Duchess of York, Harrison Ford uh, type people. Uh, and she's done between 15 and 20,000 interviews. But she still very much holds dear that early flying experience. I don't know about you, but as I was listening back through Deanie's story about the, the flight into the snowstorm, I was picturing it in the, the context of a, a CRM course and trying to, to count the different elements stacking up that could have contributed to a, a much worse outcome. It's also interesting to see how helicopter traffic reporting has changed since then too. 
Here in Brisbane, there is a, another MiG at the moment flying a, a very heavy R44 decked out with cameras and a bunch of different radios and screens. Uh, it's all set up to do live video crosses with the local TV stations. So you've got a pilot, a presenter, and a video operator all on board. I've posted some photos of Dini and her pink helicopter on the show notes for this episode at rotarywingshow.com forward slash 49. And normally I try and add a, a related flying video to the show notes too. And for this episode, I couldn't find one. It's obviously going back pre-internet days when Dini was flying. So what I've put up is her interview with Harrison Ford. It's very different to most interviews that you would expect uh, with him. and Quite a lot of fun. Before we went into the interview, I mentioned the, the cat and duck method of instrument flight. So for a bit of fun, I'll read this out and include it here. It has received much publicity and is considered to have a great deal of merit by those who have not tried it. No reports have been received from those who did try it and none are expected. Pilots are invited to assess its merits objectively. Basic rules for the cat and duck method of instrument flight are fairly well known and extremely simple. Here's how it's done. 1. Place a live cat on the cockpit floor. Because a cat always remains upright, it can be used in lieu of a needle and ball. Merely watch to see which way the cat leans to determine if a wing is low and if so, which one. Number two, the duck is used for instrument approach and landing. Because of the fact that any sensible duck will refuse to fly under instrument conditions, it is only necessary to hurl your duck out of the aircraft and follow it to the ground. There are some limitations to the cat and duck method, but by rigidly adhering to the following checklist, a degree of success will be achieved which will surely startle you, your passengers and the occasional tower operator. Point 1. Get a, a wider weight cat. Most cats do not want to stand up at all. It may be necessary to carry a large dog in the cockpit to keep the cat at attention. Point 2. Make sure your cat is clean. Dirty cats will spend all their time washing. Trying to follow a washing cat usually results in a tight snap roll followed by an, an inverted spin. Number three, use old cats only. Young cats have nine lives, but old, used-up cats with only one life left have just as much to lose as you do and will be more dependable. Point four, beware of cowardly ducks. If the duck discovers that you're using the cat to stay upright, it will refuse to leave without the cat. Ducks are no better in IFR conditions than you are. Point five, be sure the duck has good eyesight. Nearsighted ducks sometimes fail to realise that they are on the gauges and go flocking off into the nearest hill. Very nearsighted ducks will not realise that they have been thrown out and will descend to the ground in a sitting position. This manoeuvre is difficult to follow in an aeroplane. Point six, use land-loving ducks. It is very discouraging to break out and find yourself on final for a rice paddy, particularly if there are duck hunters around. Duck hunters suffer from temporary insanity while sitting in freezing weather in the blinds and will shoot at anything that flies. Step 7. Choose your duck carefully. It is easy to confuse ducks with geese because many water birds look alike. While they are very competent instrument flyers, geese seldom want to go in the same direction as you. There you have it folks, the cat and duck method of instrument flying. And with that, thank you for tuning in. This has been episode 49 of the Rotary Wing Show. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Catch you next time.